Hello, listeners. It's Philip. Um, I'm here with my cousin Mark and my brother Peter, and there's plenty of tennis to discuss. Um, Miami was the hell of a tournament. Uh, um, a lot of storylines to come out of it. One of the things that's being discussed, though, is an off-court issue um, with one of the trustees, uh, the player, one of the player representatives on the uh, uh, ATP board, uh, Justin Gemmelstab. He's being um, He's being prosecuted for assault, basically. And what happened was he uh, allegedly uh, found someone who was friends with his ex-wife uh, outside, like on Halloween night, and just beat the shit out of them. Um, and this was sort of like not an isolated instance. There have been a lot of stories of Gimmelstab, uh Sort of having like a split personality, just being an incredibly charismatic media personality on one side, and then just being a complete dickhead uh, when he's either drunk or just like in his most psychopathic moments. Um, isn't he also Isner's coach? Yeah, yeah, and he's Isner's coach. <laughs> he he has sort of like like uh, one thing that people are like uh, miffed about, at least in tennis circles, is that there seem to be conflicts of interest um, in what he does because he's a commentator on Tennis Channel, uh, a board member on the ATP Tour, and um, a coach of one of the players. Um, and so, first of all, that's like incredibly impressive. Like, he seems like <laughs> yeah. incredibly high-functioning, which is actually... Um, a characteristic of someone who has, like, split personality. Um, but, yeah, Mark uh, and Peter, uh, do you guys have Gimmelstabian moments where you just, like, totally fucked up? Yeah, I got a couple. Um, I have one, you know, just as far as the uh, anger management issue. I was a shoe salesman during the latter stages of my college life at, at George Washington, and I was working at a store... Uh, um, near Far in Farragut North, there was a guy who came into the store, and I guess it was a little trick, which I found out after the fact what the trick is, is you keep um, trying on different sizes of the same shoe, and you and you force the uh, salesperson to run back and forth you know, into, the, into the sort of storage area. And I guess on the sixth time, and I couldn't quite figure it out, because he kept just sort of going all over the place with sizes, he just took off with one of the pairs of shoes. Uh, that was the first time it happened on my nickel. And then later that day when I was in Tower Records by GW, I saw a guy who I thought it was him. And I called a friend and I said, hey, I need you to come here with your golf clubs. And so we went into the store and we started chasing after this so-called suspect with the golf clubs. And then I realized it was somebody entirely different. But this is after I screamed a bunch of epithets at him. So I couldn't figure out how to resolve the situation. So I just gave him. I gave him 40 bucks of cash, and I said, I was really sorry. <laughs> so, because I figured I had somewhat of a, somewhat of a reputation to uphold. So that, that was one of my, my several Gimmelstab moments. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty bad one. Um, yeah, but it's totally understandable, on the other hand. I, I have one. Um, um, I actually have two. The first happened at a squash tournament when I was like 15. Um, my coach, uh, this British guy, he would 
give us all like wet willies sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so I I spied like Mark, my coach, and I like licked my finger so it was extremely wet and put it in his ear, and it ended up not being my coach. <laughs> and that was extremely awkward. I had to apologize profusely uh, for that. So 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 mine is um more Brent more raising the skeletons of my my more meat-headed past and it, it doesn't have much to do with uh Gimmelstab's anger management or maybe a little bit in a sort of way um of his but it doesn't really have to have to do with his like anger management side um more than his willingness to just say things that are totally untrue for a self-serving purpose. Um, and the background for this is there's a 2001 interview or something where he 2008, was... 2008, 2008. Yeah. 2008. He was with her and he didn't want to, I think. Okay, so, so basically he was going to be doing an exhibition alongside Anna Kornikova in some capacity. And he was just basically just like crushing her, saying, um, if she's not crying by the end, I'm not doing my job. Hate's a very strong word, but I despise her in every sense. Um, maybe the thing right below hate is how I feel about her. Um, her serve is going to go like 40 miles an hour, and I'm just going to like serve it 130 to her midsection and, and make her like, and just like rock her. Um, and it was basically like, not just a lot of like, there was a lot of sort of uh, misogyny in there, um, and uh, the uh, the one, and he just kept going because then one of the reporters asked him like, what he thought of Anna Kornikova physically, or if he would like want some any sort of romantic relationship with her, and he said, um, no, her body's fine, but her face is like a five. And that's just like so blatantly untrue that it's almost just absurd. It's it's almost as if he she'd like rejected him in some sort of overture, and uh, he was just sort of like um, trying to like create a narrative that uh, everybody's eyes know is is false. Um, but along along those lines, uh, one of the one of the rumors in college we we uh, we. We were very um, adamant about spreading. Was we wanted we wanted especially the the gay community at Princeton to know that um, one of our teammates, uh, Craig Matthews, had an eight inch penis. <laughs> I think we called it a nine inch penis. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, that was just a fun rumor to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, in 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 the in the vein of uh, just totally saying something, just like bullshitting, and realizing that people are taking you seriously, um, and then realizing what you said is like uh, not what you actually uh, believe. Um, yeah, I was at Thanksgiving dinner with someone else's family, and they were sort of ragging me because I'm 30 and single. 
and uh, so I, I imparted that my life plan is actually to stay single until I'm 50 and then marry a 20-year-old. And uh, my friend's mom was less than impressed. Uh, <laughs> but but, his, but their dad, uh, who's a doctor, was just like, yeah, let me know when that happens. <laughs> like, he was more like challenging me than... Uh, yeah, he's had experience hitting on twenty-year-olds as a fifty-year-old, and knows it's not as easy as you. Yeah, it's is, not it, as easy as you imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's easy to try, just not to succeed. I, I, I think it will stop with people. I mean, you know what? I I reserve judgment on that. If anything, I err on the side of of uh, thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah. The effort. So speaking of thumbs up, it it, it feels like some of our. Uh, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, Phil, what, what's your take on Miami? What, what's the good, the bad, and the ugly? Um, I think in Miami, the good is that the young players really came to play. Um, another good is that the oldest player really came to play. Um, and I guess the bad... Um, I would actually also call it a good that Rafa didn't play because there's no reason for him to play that tournament. Um, I think it was just generally a good tournament, Peter. Do you have any like negative takeaways? Uh, negative takeaways. Um, Dominic team could not follow up on his previous result. Um, yeah, I guess like the generation between Nadal Federer and the young guys, like Chilich team. Uh, no, it was it wasn't just them. It was like like you get to the quarterfinals and the only the only top eight seeds that are there are uh, Isner and and Federer. And it's like yeah, it's sort of expected now when you have back to back big tournaments like this, that the second one is just gonna be a second rate showing. Yeah. And um, it's not just Nadal and Djokovic, and it's not just Nadal and Federer anymore who are, like, on and off. It's, like, half the tour. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if, you know, they just, they just party hard in between. There's obviously every reason to do so. Or they, they just, they're pacing themselves. There's probably a, probably a lot of factors. Or including, you know, that there's just, there's a little bit more parity than we realize, but then that parity... Kind of gets a race in two out of three at least. It's like a great equalizer, but then when you get to three out of five, it really does separate the men from the boys. So we'll see. I mean, I'm sure Nadal feels like he's exactly where he wants to be in terms of him pacing himself. Probably Djokovic is. I mean, probably that those three guys are all well paced, you know, for for the summer um, for the summer slog because you kind of you can't really take much time off between. Let's say two weeks from now in the end of Wimbledon. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess another one is that Djokovic is like, I don't know what's going on with him. I think he's starting to take it easy at Masters because at Indian Wells and Miami both, he was just trying to be a backboard and not really attacking or doing anything aggressive. Um, and I don't know if he's, like, actually just sort of coming down or if he's just, like, going Federer and Nadal and, like, just not really bringing it for every Masters anymore. 
Yeah. I think if you see the Australian Open, he was a little vulnerable before it, and then he played it invincibly. So my guess is that they paced. Same thing with the U.S. Open last year. He lost in Canada, and then he was almost impossible to beat. So I'd say that these guys are, I think they know exactly how many matches they, they need to win to get a few points. But they, I think they're really, yeah, I think they're using it as kind of glorified warm-up. I mean, that would be my sense. Whereas Fed, because he knows he's going to play a little bit, he has nothing to defend on the clay, didn't really have to pace himself. So it seems like it's a combination of the two, maybe getting a little complacent, but at the same time, knowing that they don't want to go all in. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Mark? What are, what are your uh, takeaways from Miami? Yeah, and I'm happy to see Isner make the finals. Obviously, some of it has to do, a lot of it has to do with his coach. And the fact that his coach is just really, you know, very calm and reassuring influence who, who doesn't get, you know, doesn't get um, unnerved by things too easily. And I think that that's contagious with Isner. So he can have an off tournament and then rebound. So, yeah, I would say that's definitely, you know, big on the coaching side. Uh, I didn't get to see them play much, but, but great for the young Canadians. Uh, George played, had a good tournament again, and he's going he's gonna to be a force. You know, he may, I think team has to be careful because otherwise I think he, George is really going to take team's place. And I think that he needs to be more consistent. Otherwise, literally that. Dude, it's that, like one week, we're one week removed from like team crushing it in the Indian Wells final. And right, but I feel like that was the only the one who can be the time. big. You yeah. know, that he had been off. So he's had one good week, and he's had more bad weeks than good weeks. And that's why, okay, you know, if, if you're on one week but then off four or five, I don't think that, you know, that creates the, the chance to climb the ladder or, 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 or win big in the majors. I mean, he, he definitely did play well. Randitz is not that great, um, but he played well against Fed. But you got to back it up with something. So not to be too hard on him, obviously, he's got a lot of upside, but, but he, he needs the consistency, I think. Yeah. That would be that would be my take. Yeah, I thought uh, like uh, a cool result was that uh, Sitsipas and Kulhoff made like the finals of doubles. <laughs> it was just like a random double, a random duo. They almost beat the Bryans. And I guess another good one was that the Bryans won another Wet Masters one thousand. Yeah, Phil uh, and I, Phil and I, Pete and I saw them win last year, and that was a great match against against the Russians. Yeah, but I guess the, the biggest storyline is the Canadians. And, uh, yeah, Peter, uh, what do you think of the young Canadians? Yeah, so um, part of my research this past weekend as they were just crushing it, first of all, I love both of them. And I love the contrast in their games. Um, I love the contrast in their demeanors. I love the contrast in – yeah, I just like – I think – Canada has so much to be happy about. It's like both of these guys are are phenoms and um, and they're likable and uh, we're gonna see a lot more of them hopefully. Um, but my uh, my research is just trying to like gauge them on the age slash like the, the ranking curve based on their age relative to other past phenoms. And so um, starting with uh, like Felix. So Felix is ranked 33 in the world right now, right? Where was he three months ago or two months ago? Uh, he, he was, was 
100. Yeah, he was like 100 two months ago. Then he got to the finals of Rio, which got him 360 points. Then he got to the round of 16 in Indian Wells, which got him 90. And then he got to the semis of, um, of, uh, of Miami, which got him another 360. And so he shot up to basically being a seed in a Grand Slam now. Um, and so, um, and he's basically ahead of everybody else's curve. Um, so he's about 18 and a half right now. Um, by, by the age Felix is now, the only one who's even close is Nadal, who his career high was, was um, 34 by that time, um, which he actually achieved like, he achieved 34th and then he got went back down to like 70 and then he came back up. And by the time he was, by the time he turned 19, um, on June 3rd, uh, two, er, 2005, he was number three in the world. Um, and so, so basically Felix is ahead of Nadal right now. Um, but Felix will have to become number three in the world by the time he's 19 or by like August or something to stay ahead of Nadal. Well, that's, that's not, not likely to happen, but it certainly doesn't have to, right? So yeah. what would you say, what, what would impress you um, even more about his arc? If he got into the top 15 by then, if he got into the top 20? I, mean, so, I don't even think he's being held to that standard. Yeah, so I'm just saying, I'm just using Nadal yeah, no, as I, the no, one who was like the best teenager ever. Um, but then the, the two recent ones, so like compare Felix to Sitsipas, right? Um, Sitsipas by, uh, sorry, what's his birthday? August, August 8th, um, or August 12th, 1998. So by the time Sitsipas was, so on his birthday in 2017, um, was, so when he turned 19, um, he was ranked 160 in the world. Then by the time he turned 20, he was ranked um, he was ranked 15 in the world. Uh, so he's he's already way ahead of Sitsipas. Um, but Sitsipas had the like his big bump in the 19 to 20 age group, uh -huh. um, which is where uh, Shapovalov is. Shapovalov is just turning 20 right now. Um, like, he will turn 20 before the next tournament. And he's ranked 20th in the world. And so he's kind of like in... And Zverev also was ranked 20th in the world when he turned 20. And then, like, within the next two to three months, he had a big jump from, like, 20th in the world to top 10. And so um, I think uh, Shapovalov is, like kind of in line with the Zverev Sitsipas chart, but um, uh, Zverev is still sort of like more of a phenom um, relative to, uh, like in terms of their age and rank relative to Sitsipas. Um, and so that's sort of how to couch uh, Felix and Shapovalov in terms of like historic uh, prodigies. So, Phil, you really kind of, um, you got a little bit ahead of the curve, I think you called it maybe five, six weeks ago, in terms of uh, 
of being bullish on, on Felix? Not that you were not bullish on the other young stars, but what was it that you saw? What was it? Was it just kind of like a shot in the dark, or there was really something about his game that you really liked? No, I saw his first match in Rio, like right when it started, like right when his run started against uh, Fognini, and he just looked like filthy. Like he looked like like the best player not named Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer. Like um, he just took it to Fognini. Um, he just has like incredible like feel for the game. Um, like all of these guys, if you if you get to the top level, uh, they all have perfect technique or technique that works well enough. What really sets them apart is just, like, their feel. Who can put the ball, like, uh, that extra inch closer to the baseline consistently. And also, just, like, uh, one thing that really impresses me about him is the way he carries himself. Um, he's, like, very positive um, in his demeanor. Um, and uh, he just he just is ready for the next point, no matter what happens. Um and also, even his uh, even his weaknesses are encouraging because they his his only real weaknesses it seems is he'll just randomly shank balls a little too often and uh, he double faults too much and these are things that can be fixed a lot more than like needing to be faster or needing to like have a bigger serve like he's got weapons and like the things that. Um, that like our weaknesses right now are just like are like I wouldn't say like quick fixes, but uh, things that uh, you would expect him to fix and like get get out from his, get out of his game. Yeah, Mark, did you did you were you able to see him live? Um, Mark's on a quick break right now. Oh yeah, so. One of my um, one of my take one of my sort of sources of encouragement for Felix is that he still like looks really really young. It's as if he's not fully developed yet. Like he could have another inch in him. He could have like he's definitely got some just natural strength to gain, and he's already this good. Um, yeah. he, he also, he, he carries himself like he's always been the most nat the, the most talented person on court. Um, I think part of the whole, like nothing phases him sort of dynamic is that he's just like always been so successful. Um, and he's never had a reason to be phased. Like, he, um, I mean, he, he clearly has had some adversity um playing like he it took him a while to like break through the challengers it it uh like he had that heart thing in in uh the u.s open and so it's not like everything's been smooth sailing but it's it's like he has always been the youngest one um he's yeah it's just like he's had far fewer reasons to doubt himself than it seems like a lot of other people have yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess with yeah, it makes sense that he's so self-confident. Yeah, 
And then I guess with uh, taking him where it's needed to go. I think the one of the more um, so I think Shapovalov's draw was like very entertaining because he went from um, who who did he beat? He beat uh, Dan Evans, who's like kind of a next gen, but not really, but he's pretty good. And then he beat um, and then he beat. Uh, Sitsipas, it's like a next gen sort of rivalry there, um, and then he beat uh, Tiafo, another next gen rivalry, um, and then he he comes in with just all of this momentum, having being like playing super well, beating a top ten player for the second week in a row, um, just having having stretches where he was on and the other person ha he was in total control and the other person had no answers and then he then he then he um then he comes up against Federer and just gets destroyed and it's it was like the sort of thing where for the first few games like it was clear Federer was playing well but the announcers were t were remarking on how poorly Shapovalov was playing but then, as the match wore on, it was it was it was kind of it was almost like it became slightly more. It became increasingly clear that Shapovalov wasn't actually playing that poorly. It's just like you can be fooled into thinking somebody's at a level that they're not at if that top if that next level isn't isn't there to sort of humble them. And Federer is just like at another level. And it felt like the uh, the Sitsipas Nadal match in Australia, where it was like the young gun with so much momentum, learning in a very brutal way that they still have a long way to go. Yeah, that's a good um, analogy. Uh, what did you think of the other young guys? So, like the guys he played, Sitsipas and uh, Tiafa. Uh, I thought Sitsipas looked really good. I think that even though Shapovalov won the match, I think Sitsipas might be better. Um, and I sort of it became it be I hadn't like watched a full match of his in a while, and so I and it became a lot more clear to me like what he's really good at. Um, he just hits a very heavy ball, and and uh, plays at a fast pace. Like he's he's just taking the ball on the rise. He can hit a very clean shot from awkward positions and just cuts the time from the opponent. Um, and in the past, I, I remember there was an Australian Open interview of him and he was saying that after the Nadal match, he was saying that he doesn't understand how Federer ever beat Nadal because his game is like Federer's and um, he just had no hope against Nadal. And he got kind of like skewered for that, for like comparing his game to Federer's. And it's like, obviously he's not the same level as Federer, um, but, uh, and he doesn't have the same just sort of uh, effortless, like remarkable shot making ability that you see from Federer. But he does have the same, like, maybe not the same level, but his strength of just taking time away from the opponent um, is is very like Federer esque. Yeah, 
One thing I like about him is he's already so good at net. Like, that's not something that's going to hold him back, like his net play. Yeah. Um, and so is Felix, actually. Um, they're not Svera. They're not like Svera in that respect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, um, Felix is just awesome at net. He just has, like, great instincts up there. Uh... I will say though, I think the standard for being good at net has like has like dipped a lot. I I was I was watching like old um old tennis videos recently and I was watching like old Sampras matches and old Edberg matches and um it was it's like a great volley now was a routine volley back then. And so I guess it's not it's not sort of too much to like neg on these guys, but I guess the game has changed. But um, I guess what we what we talk what we the way we discuss like being good at net, um, I wouldn't actually say it like that. I would say it's like they know they have an instinct for when to close on the net to end the point. Yeah, and they can actually execute. Um, on those closing shots. Yeah. Um, Dude, Federer yeah. was such a monster, though. Like, he just wasn't missing. He was playing, like, very, very well. Yeah. It's incredible how good he still is. Like, I wonder how long he can keep this up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we like, we were at the forefront of calling his demise, like, six months ago. Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a linear demise. It's going to be like, he'll have his ups, he'll have his downs, and now he's back up. Hopefully the ups don't, aren't well-timed enough for him to get another Grand Slam. Um, you think it's uh, smart for him to play, uh, clay court season? No, I think it's, it's like, it's just going to wear him out. Yeah, I agree. Like, he's... Not going to win Roland Garros, and there's no real reason for him to play otherwise. And, like, if he just saves it for Wimbledon, maybe he just wants, like, match play. Like, maybe he thinks that uh, he didn't have enough match play going into Wimbledon. Yeah, I think one way to do the clay season, I think Mark has said this before, is maybe do one of the clay court tournaments leading up to Roland Garros and then do Roland Garros. And so he's not totally taxing himself on the clay, but he is sort of, uh, yeah, he's, he, he does, like, maintain his sort of mental toughness. Yeah, and he doesn't have any points to defend, so, like, uh, yeah, he can, he can go at his own pace. Yeah. Yeah, what are, what are your uh, predictions for the clay? Do you, who, who are going to win? The big five events like Barcelona, uh, Monte Carlo, Madrid, Rome, and uh, Roland Garros. Um, I think we're going to see at least two Nadal Djokovic finals before Roland Garros. Um, I think that uh, I think that I don't know. It's hard to say. You have a lot of guys who've had success in the past on clay, like Zverev. Um, team, uh, uh, Nishikori, um, 
Well, it'll be interesting to see Felix on the clay because that's his favorite surface, right? And but uh, uh, I don't know what his favorite surface is, but he he was like very good on it um, in Rio and Acapulco. But then Nadal is always his best self during clay season, so I'm sure he'll reach a few finals. And um, I think Djokovic, more than any other Grand Slam, feels like he needs to have a few, like at least one or two matches against Nadal before Roland Garros. Um, and so we're going to get like effort from those guys. And it'll it'll be interesting. Um, I I do wonder how Zverev's gonna do because he did have like a lot of success last year. He won Rome, um, and I do yeah, wonder. He won, how, he won Madrid. Her, he won Madrid. Sorry, and yeah. uh, and I, I I also wonder how team's gonna do. Yeah, I think Zverev's ranking is gonna drop because uh, I think the addition of Djokovic to, like, the people who could win clay court tournaments means that Zverev is going to have, like, less success. Yeah. Like, Zverev is not going to... I just don't think he's going to win a Masters 1000 um, during the clay season. Um, Yeah. um, Yeah, and it really depends on, like, which team shows up for... uh, for the matches to see, like, what his... Res- I mean, he could... On a good day, he could beat anyone. And on a not-so-good day, he can lose in the first round. Yeah. Um, do you, are there any sort of uh, guys who um, aren't, like, the top guys who you're, you're, looking, you're looking at? For, for the clay season? Yeah. I think, like, Marco Cecchinato, uh, he had a really good clay court season last year, and I think he made the semis of Roland Garros. Yeah, um, he beat Joker. And so he, like, needs to either back it up or he's going to drop pretty precipitously. And then uh, Stan, he's, like, on the cusp of top 32. If he can get to, like, a seeding before... Uh, before Roland Garros, like, uh, that'll be really good for him. Yeah. So the other one I'm looking at is, is, uh, Dimitrov because, um, so right now his ranking is, God, where is he? He's 29th in the world, but he's set to, his point total is set to drop from 1300 to, uh, 850 after I think Madrid or, or one of those I think either Barcelona or Madrid and a point total of 850 would put him at 61 in the world wow so Dimitrov is on on the precipice of a, of, of a, of a mini sock yeah this, this is quite sockian like, he has literally done nothing in, like, 12 months. It's, like, so, so unacceptable. Yeah. Someone who's not injured. The other one I'm, I'm looking at is Laszlo Jera, the guy who beat Felix twice when Felix was, was like, having his, having his bloom. Um, 
It's like Felix was hot, but so was this guy on clay. Yeah, he's good. Um, he's really good at straightening out his backhands. Yeah. Like Felix was like rallying with him and hitting good shots, and then this guy was just like, when whatever he wanted, just like, like uh, redirecting the ball down the line, and uh, yeah, it was really impressive. Yeah. Yeah, another one is, like, Alex DeMinor, because, like, I mean, he should be good on clay, but it seems like for the last, like, three years now, he's had a really, really good Australian uh, part of the season and then just sort of disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, what's ha that's what happened last year. That's what happened this year. And last year, he had a big surge towards the end of the summer. Um, yeah. So I wonder what it is about this time of year for him. Maybe he just likes hot weather. Yeah. Like hot Australian-type weather. Um, but yeah, those are the guys I'm, like, keeping an eye on. Um, yeah. Do you have um, anything, anything else to add? Let's see. Um, this is kind of a lull in the calendar. We're not gonna get, we're not gonna get uh, a tournament until mid, another tournament until mid month. Uh, I, I think we covered we covered the the main points. Um, I don't really have much more to add. Oh yeah, what, one other thing is um, Del Potro. Oh yeah, he's, I'm not sure when. It seems like he's like pretty close to coming back. But I'm not sure. I don't think he set a date yet. Yeah. It would be really sad if he got all the way back to three and then has to, like, start the whole rebuilding process again. Yeah, I mean, he still has, like, finalist points from the U.S. Open. So he's got time to, like, uh, to, like, sort of consolidate a top 15 ranking um, before those go off the table. Yeah. But yeah, it is sad for him. And I think the other one is uh, Medvedev. I feel like he was he was like very hot to start the season, but he's kind of cooled off a little. Yeah, I saw his match against Federer. Like I don't know how much you can use a match against Federer as a barometer, um, just because like Federer was so on, but. Uh, I saw, I saw his match against Djokovic in Australia, and uh, there was one set where it looked like he and Djokovic were just, like, at the same level, um, and it was like, holy crap. And then uh, Medvedev just, like, fell off a cliff fitness-wise. Like, he just... Like, I remember thinking in that match, it's like, if Medvedev can keep this up, he is the fittest, like, player on tour, because he was running so much. Huh. Um yeah, and so I think, like, he just needs to build up his strength. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that's what I got. Um, and to the listeners, it's it's always a pleasure. And I hope you, you enjoyed uh, our, our thoughts. <laughs>